Let's open God's word this morning to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Congregation Woodstock, we're working basically one chapter at a time through the, the book of Esther. A challenging work, especially knowing that God's name is not anywhere mentioned in this book, and yet God's fingerprints are all over it. And so when we come to Esther 4, we're almost in the middle of the book. Esther has been chosen to replace Queen Vashti to be the new queen for King Ahasuerus and the Empire of the Medes and the Persians, quite a horrific beauty pageant by which she was chosen. Her cousin and guardian, Mordecai, has instructed her not to reveal the fact that she is a Jewish woman. Of course, the Israelites are in exile at this point. Uh, Mordecai discovers a plot against the king, and so he is. it's recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the King, and that becomes quite an important factor later on. But because Mordecai's in the king's gate, as the king's closest advisor, Haman, leaves that gate, Mordecai is the only one who does not honor Haman. Haman is, trace his line back, an Amalekite, sworn enemies of God's people, sworn to completely wipe them out, to destroy the seed of the woman. And so Mordecai refuses to honor him in that position. And so that brings us to chapter 4, where Haman, conniving, has the kings basically permit him to write a decree that all the Jews will be destroyed, annihilated, within the empire within the coming months. There's a day that's been chosen. And so that decree has just been published to the entire empire, and we come into chapter 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command from Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. 
So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that, that Esther commanded him. As far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you know the mind of God? Sometimes we'd like to. Just what does God think about this particular problem or event in my life? Just give me a little peek, a little more understanding into the big picture so that I can understand that it's okay that this is what's happening to me and I can deal with it better. What is God's purpose in all of these things? But several times the Bible reminds us that we can't know the mind of God, at least not completely. For example, in 1 Corinthians 2, it says that the work of the Spirit is supernatural. It's beyond us and our ability to decide when and where the Spirit can bring a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. Rebirth, regeneration, we call that. And then verse 16 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So on the one hand, we can't know God's works and timing. The Spirit can't be pinned down and controlled by us. Or as we heard a few moments ago from Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. There is an unbridgeable gap between our minds and the mind of God, between what we can fit inside here and the immeasurable vastness of God's knowledge. We call that God's omniscience. He knows everything. But 1 Corinthians 2 says we have the mind of Christ. Not in the sense that through Christ, we have a secret backdoor passageway into God's mind so we can sneak in there every now and then. And if we, if we know the key, we can unlock the omniscience of God and we can know things where nobody else can. It's not what it means. What it means is to have a mind that knows the Lord. And in knowing the Lord, we can submit to whatever God's will has called us to do, even if the purpose for that will is kept as a secret from us for a time. To have the mind of Christ is to put ourselves under the will of God because we know that that will is what Jesus himself submitted to in order to secure our salvation. Deliverance comes to us because the mind of Christ was willing to trust the Lord 
even to the cross. So even if we don't know the entirety of God's mind, we know what he's revealed to us in his word about Jesus Christ. We know that we can trust his ways even if we don't know exactly, precisely how it's all going to fit nice and tidily into his plan. It's trust. And it's that trust that Mordecai challenges Esther to rest in. If Esther wanted, she might have been able to spare her own life for a while. She might have been able to hold on to her royal position as queen, maybe even longer than Queen Vashti, who was rejected by the king in verse one or in chapter 1. Maybe Esther, because she's queen, could have avoided the horrors that were coming to the rest of her people and her cousin Mordecai. Eleven months later is the date when everyone in the city and the rest of the empire could put all the Jews to death and take all of their stuff, no repercussions, no justice. But at least Esther would be safe. Or, as Mordecai challenges her, she could risk her life by going to a king who is so short-sighted, who is completely selfish and often foolish and arbitrary, unpredictable, and Esther can put her life in his hands, knowing that her life was actually in the hands of the Lord. That's why Mordecai reminds Esther in this chapter of who she still is. She might be the queen, but she is still one of God's covenant people, the people to whom God has pledged to show mercy and to spare them from evil and even to deliver them from the injustices of pagan kings, the people who had been given the promise of the Messiah. That's what Mordecai reminds her about. And it's that promise that then gives her the courage to step forward, not knowing what's going to happen. It's because her life rests in the hands of the judge who is just and merciful in Jesus Christ that she decides she will risk her life by going before a king who is not just and who is not merciful because she trusts the Lord. So We'll see this morning that Esther submits herself to the Lord's time. We'll look at this passage in three parts. First, crying a bitter cry. Second, commanding a dangerous risk. And third, choosing to perish. Esther submits herself to the Lord's time. I mentioned a moment ago in chapter 3, Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, had been elevated to the highest position in the Persian Empire next to the king himself. But when Haman saw that Mordecai the Jew had refused to pay him honor, Chapter 3 describes how furious Haman became. And not just with Mordecai in particular, Mordecai's defiance, but because Mordecai was a Jew, that was the point. Haman understood that his ancestors, the Amalekites, were sworn enemies of God's people, and they were committed to the annihilation of that people. And so Haman comes up with a scheme to cast the lot and to present it as an opportunity to the king. If you let me, O great king, I will not only get rid of a people in your empire who defy you and live their own way instead of revering you, O king, but I pledge to give you out of that annihilation 10,000 talents of silver by the time this is all done. King was thinking about the money, not about the people. And he said, well, here, here's my signet ring. Sign it. <laughs> make it. Make it the law. Send it to the 
every province of the empire. Within the year, the Jews are to be killed. Kill them all. Take their stuff. Have fun. And then Haman and the king sit down to drink. Normally, Mordecai spent his days in the king's gate with his ear to the ground for rumors and gossip, which is why in, back in chapter 2 he'd heard that plot about assassinating the king and was able to say something and have it stopped. But Mordecai normally understanding things, knowing things, eager to learn, when he learned this, when he heard this decree, it was not an honor for him. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Sackcloth. I don't know if you've ever tried to wear that. It's a heavy, rough, itchy fabric. It's, think of wearing a potato sack. It's, it's not something you would make your everyday clothes out of. Certainly not the clothes that you would wear if you are close to the king. You're in the king's gate. And then he has ashes that he puts on his head. Think of the ashes from the fires of the sacrifices in the temple. Ashes represent the dust of death. So sackcloth and ashes are an outward way of expressing a heart that is torn apart by grief, that has no comfort. Except usually you put on sackcloth and then you put ashes on your head after the tragic event has happened. After a loved one has passed away, for example. But Mordecai is doing this months in advance of the decree for the Jews to be annihilated. They're not attacked yet. They're not in danger yet. But Mordecai's grief has already begun. So much so that at the end of the verse, verse 1, he says he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. The way that this is written in Hebrew, it doesn't just say that his crying was loud and bitter. But there's a feature of the language that we don't have in English, so it's, it's not that easy to translate sometimes. But Hebrew will double a word to emphasize just how great it is. So literally, he cries a cry loud and bitter. It means a cry on top of a cry. Crying, he cried. It's the same figure of speech that God uses in Genesis chapter 1. When God created each day, at the end of every day, he says, and God saw that it was good. But after the sixth day, when God's work is complete, in English, we say that God saw that it was very good, which is fine. But in Hebrew, it says that God saw that it was good, good, good on top of good, as good as it can get. Now, that's a positive way to express it. This is the opposite. This is as negative as it can get. Not only is it a deep cry, it is a deeper cry below that. We need to point this out because it's not just that Mordecai feels sad. Poor Mordecai. It's not just that he's putting on a display of superficial, everybody, please have pity on us, we're Jews, and life is going to be rough. This is grief as deep as can be expressed. A few moments ago, we sang from Psalm 69, which is a lament. Now, 69b speaks, points out the highlights of Psalm 69, the words of comfort and reassurance, but Psalm 69 as a whole is a lament that Christ often spoke of. Verse 20 of that psalm, it says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. And that's what Mordecai is expressing here. A grief that seems to have no answer. A grief so close to hopelessness and despair. 
as we heard from Psalm 77, has the Lord forgotten to be gracious? Can even the Lord bring a comfort for a grief like this? And that's the underlying question of this chapter. Now, if you know the book of Esther, you know how it's all going to turn out. Wonderfully so. But imagine being in this chapter. It was you that the decree was written about. You lived in one of the provinces of the empire, and it was announced in the town square that your life was going to be lost, and all of your stuff and all of your family was all going to be taken away from you and destroyed just months away. Imagine that. Imagine living this. God's people had no idea where this was going to go. Where, where is God in all of this? Has God forgotten his covenant promises? Will he forget to be gracious? The king has issued a decree, and we all know that the laws of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. We've already been exiled by the Lord because of, their, because of our sins, and, and by this time, some of those, those exiles had returned to the promised land. But really, that's still within the realm of the Persian Empire. The very existence of the Jewish people is at stake. Will the Lord be faithful? That's the question of this chapter. It might be easy for us sitting here quite comfortably in an air-conditioned room to say, well, of course he is. We're not under an edict that our neighbors, who we know by first name, our kids play together, that our neighbors on this certain date a few months from now are allowed to come and kill us, and we're not allowed to do anything about it. We have some of our brothers and sisters who do live in circumstances like this. Think of, of other places in the world where someone to, if someone were to publicly confess that they are a Christian, that they trust in Jesus Christ, it, they, it, they're signing their own death warrants. You think of places like Iran or, or Pakistan or Afghanistan or parts of North Africa, other areas where our brothers and sisters actually live under a decree like this. And meanwhile, the world carries on as if nothing's wrong with that. Verse 2, it says that, that Mordecai goes as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Now, Mordecai used to sit in the king's gate. And the king and his officials would come and go into the palace through that gate. And the king, it's not surprising considering the, the, the personality he's been revealed to have earlier in this book, the king doesn't want people in the king's gate to be mourning or to be wearing sackcloth. The king doesn't want to be reminded about the struggles of the people out there in his own empire. Don't ruin my mood. That's the kind of mercy you can expect from a king like this, the king of Persia. Don't bother me with your troubles. That's the way this king wanted to present himself to the people who might have wanted to petition him for help. I don't even want to know that it's out there. I don't want to see it. What kind of a king do we have in the Lord? The king of Persia? Do you remember Jesus hanging on the cross, crying out in the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and not receiving an answer? Does that mean that the father had turned into the king of Persia? I don't want to hear about it. What's interesting is that's actually what the covenant people thought was happening to Jesus. Remember the way they mocked him? 
They mocked the fact that he was crying out. They knew Psalm 22, verse 1, that Jesus was quoting that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have recognized what he was asking for, that he was crying out. And so they said, well, maybe he's just crying out for Elijah. If God really loved him, then God never would have let him be nailed to the cross in the first place. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he will have him. God is not the kind of God to listen to a man nailed to a cross like that. God is not the kind of a king who will listen to the mourner's cry. The one condemned as a sinner. God is not the kind of king who will listen to the deepest expression of sadness. There is no comfort to be found in a man like Jesus. That's the question we're left with here as well. If, if that's where God will leave his people in Esther 4, not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews, and they're fasting, they're mourning, they're weeping, they're wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. It, it, it comes to the question, is this the end of it? The end of David's line? The end of the covenant made with Abraham and the promise. The end of the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. That's what Mordecai and Esther have to wrestle with as we come to see what's next. Commanding a dangerous risk. Esther's maids and eunuchs who would have been assigned to take care of the queen would have probably been the go-between between Esther and Mordecai when he did sit in the king's gate. They would have noticed that he's not there. They would have looked outside the, the king's gate into the city square and said, Mordecai's over there now, and look, he's not the same. Sackcloth and ashes. We, got, we need to tell Esther. So they tell him, and it says the queen was deeply distressed. Now, at this point, she didn't know why Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes. Perhaps Mordecai didn't want Esther to find out through the usual channels of sending messages through those maids or those eunuchs. Because if they found out why Mordecai was grieving this greatly, then they might put two and two together and say, well, if Mordecai's a Jew, that means Esther's a Jew. And didn't want to do that just yet. Back in chapter 2, Mordecai had told Esther, keep your heritage a secret while you were going through that beauty pageant to be selected as the next queen. Don't tell anyone that you belong to the Lord and you are one of his people. And so far, she's obeyed that instruction. So Esther, not knowing what's going on, but wanting her cousin to be comforted, she sends a garments to clothe Mordecai so he's not wearing the sackcloth, the ashes anymore, so he can come back into the king's gate and be blessed, be honored there. What a person wore was very important to Pers Persian culture. That's, that's why it was such a, a commotion about Vashti when she was summoned to parade herself in front of the king and his advisors that she refused because how you present yourself, how you look, means everything for your status and honor. But Mordecai says, no, I refuse to accept it. Not just the cousin's offer, but the queen's offer of generosity he turns down. And so Esther, she loves her cousin. She wants to find out what's really driving this grief. And so she says, I know there's one man I can trust, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been assigned to take care of the queen. The king trusts him with his wife. Then Esther can trust him too. So she sends Hathak out. Go ask Mordecai. Mordecai says everything that's happening. Notice that in verse 7, it's not Mordecai talking about himself. You know, I was in the king's gate and Haman passed by and I refused to bow down. And that's why Haman's all angry. It's because of me. It's all about me. Woe is me. It says, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, yes, and 
the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. So it's personal and corporate. Mordecai is wrestling with this. With the events of what's happened, Haman's wrath, the Jews in danger, and then the news that this, this a massive amount of money, it's interesting that he points out the money because, you know, if someone says, you know, you're, gonna, you're put under a decree and you're going to die 11 months from now, you know how the news cycle works, right? It's news. News goes out, but the next thing comes along and everybody forgets it. On to the next important event. But something as great as 10,000 talents of silver, that's two-thirds of the annual budget of the entire empire. Nobody's forgetting that. And that's what Mordecai's pointing out. This isn't just going to die out and everybody's going to forget. It's coming. It's real. And that's why Mordecai gets down to it. And he passes along through Hathak a command to Esther. Esther, he says, you have to go to the king. You have to make supplication to him and plead before him. And then this phrase at the end of verse 8, for her people. Notice what that means. Plead before him for your people. It is time to tell the king who you really are. That the queen herself is in danger under this edict. Perhaps the king will have compassion on you. Perhaps he will find a way to unravel the thread of this decree. But Esther, in response, she hesitates. But, but, but what is this going to work? If everyone knows, if I go to the king uninvited, that I'm in danger of being put to death on the spot. No one can come to the king uninvited and expect to live. That's the law. If I go into the king, my life is already forfeited. Why would I put my life at risk that way? Because even if the king holds out his golden scepter to me to let me live in the moment, then I have to tell him right away that it's, that it's because he's already decreed to destroy me and my people, which means I'm dead anyways. It's a lose-lose situation. If I, I, I die if I go in uninvited, and even if I don't die there, I'll die later. So why would I do this? What's the point of revealing who I am? Besides, I haven't been called to go into the king for these past 30 days, so I'm clearly not at the forefront of his mind right now. Maybe I've done something that he doesn't like that he hasn't forgotten. He's less likely to show mercy to a person like me. And remember, this is already a king who felt quite easy about just dismissing a queen. He can do the same with Esther. And on top of that, I'm going to be speaking to him about his own top advisor, Haman, and what Haman has done and I will be disgracing Haman in order to speak to, to the king. There's so many factors here that line up against me going to the king. Why would I do that and take that risk? Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Esther's response. We say, oh, you don't believe you're not a faithful member of God's people. No. Let's not condemn her too quickly. She does seem to have a very good grasp on the gravity of the situation in front of her. But it's a question of how does she see herself? Mordecai told her before to keep her identity hidden, and now he's telling her it's time to reveal it. And she says, no, this, this, this probably isn't the time. There can't be any wisdom in unmasking myself in this moment. It's too risky to confess out loud, I am one of God's people. You think God's people have struggled with this in the past as well. I think of Gideon. 
God calls Gideon to lead an army against the Midianites who swarmed like locusts across the land. And Gideon says, it's impossible. Why would you call a man like me? But the Lord says, no, call the army anyway. So he calls them together, and God says, it's too big. And Gideon's like, what? It's too big? It's too small. We're supposed to fight the Midianites like this? And God says, no, whittle it down. 300 men. Impossible, Lord. No. Trust me, Gideon. Same thing here with Esther. The Lord's not directly speaking to her, unlike to Gideon. God's, like I said, God's not even mentioned in this book. All Esther has to work with is her cousin's instructions. That's it. She has this horrible decree that's levied against her people and the fact that she belongs to them is that enough? That's all she has. Her cousin's command. Is it enough when the situation looks impossible and hopeless and all we have are the promises of God, the identity that I belong to the Lord? Now I ask you this on purpose. Can a sermon on Esther 4 this morning really be used by the Holy Spirit to change or encourage a heart so full of sin like, like mine or yours? Do we really believe that? Can what happens here in this sanctuary from week to week really be used to witness to a calloused and hostile world? Really? Do we believe that? Can a carpenter's son from Nazareth really be the savior for a sinner like me? Remember when Jesus was praying in Gethsemane? In his humanity, he saw the anguish that was before him, and even he cried out to the Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there is any other way. His heart was so much more troubled at the sight of the cross than Esther's heart was troubled at the thought of going to the king. But what was it that gave Christ the conviction to carry it through. What was it that he says, not my will, but your will be done? It was the conviction that God loves his people. And that's what we see next with choosing to perish. In verse 13, Mordecai responds to Esther's hesitancy to commit to go, going before the king. And he says, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. So he's saying it very plainly to her. You're in as much danger as the rest of us. Hiding is not going to save you. And the answer to fear is not to stay in that fear and hope it just goes away if you close your eyes. Sometimes that's how we try to deal with fear. If I close my eyes, it's not there. Then look at what he says next in verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What a statement of faith that is. Notice when he says, but you and your father's house will perish. That includes Mordecai. Mordecai is her cousin. So Esther's father's brother is Mordecai's dad, his father's house. So he's including himself in this. 
And yet at the same time, he says, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. How could Mordecai say something like that in these circumstances? We started chapter 4 with seeing him cry, that cry that's deeper than a cry. The grief of sackcloth and ashes, already already mourning the death that has not yet come. But here Mordecai speaks of relief and deliverance as if it is guaranteed to happen. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews. How is this possible? Mordecai doesn't know what's going to come of this. He can't just close his eyes and hope really hard and and hope that something will happen, that the Jews might be saved. He has no guarantees that he's going to live. Or that any of the Jews scattered throughout the empire are going to survive. He has no idea. So how can he say this? faith. By faith in the promises of God. What else does Mordecai have in a situation like this except those promises? But he believes that God will not let his covenant people perish. Maybe most of them will. But he knows not all. It's just like in the exile. Nearly all of them are forced to leave the promised land and just a, a small remnant returns. But But they look at that and say, but the the Lord is faithful. Some is better than none. The Lord's promises are kept. There will always be some. That's all that Mordecai needs. That God is faithful. What the Lord says, I can trust. What God's promises, I can remember those because God will remember them. And God will do what is enough. We're called to live by the same faith. Not to be able to peer into the future and understand how God's work will all work out. When we hear God's word preached, we think the impossible is happening. That by something done verbally, something foolish, something weak, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 2, the world is going to change. We're challenged, do we believe that? We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know if we'll be here next Sunday. We don't know how many days or years it will be until Jesus comes again. We don't know what the church will have to endure until that day. But we know that day will come. So wherever God puts us until then, we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. Not because we've prefigured it all out and we understand it. We don't know how the Lord will use us. We don't know the griefs nor the blessings that are in front of us. All we know is to be called to walk by faith. Is that enough? Is that enough? That's why Mordecai says at the end of verse 14, yet who knows? Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther doesn't know. Mordecai doesn't know. But the way that he asks that question, yet who knows, there's only one possible answer to that, and he's not even mentioned. It's the Lord. Who knows? So Mordecai saying, where, where the Lord has placed you, Esther, you are not called to protect your position or to protect your life at the cost of losing your trust in the Lord's promises and forsaking your covenant identity. He's saying, trust and obey. And Esther says, 
Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This, this fasting she calls for is unusual. Normally a fast would be for dur- during the daytime. And then in the evening they would recuperate their strength. Eat something. Drink something. Before starting again with the fast in the morning. But this is full-time fasting for three straight days. And fasting, as always, is accompanied with prayer. Again, the Lord is not mentioned by name, but that's where the focus rests for these next upcoming days. For Esther and her maids and all the Jews in the capital city, pray, pray, pray for three straight days. Not about me, but pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord for remembering those promises. Who knows? That's the question mark. Who knows? Lord does. And her remarkable commitment to the end of that verse, to go to the king that's against the law, I know the consequences, but if I perish, I perish. Now this is not que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, or how young people might say, whatever, as if who cares, doesn't matter. That's not what she's saying. It's not that she's giving up. This is a word of faith. This is humble faith. It's not a resignation. It is, I will go forward trusting in the Lord. Now think about how many of our Christian brothers and sisters have made the same commitment. When the Roman authorities told them, sacrifice a pinch of incense to the gods, or take your chances in the arena with those wild animals, and the believer said, if I perish, I perish. During the Reformation, the priests would come to the reformers imprisoned Give them one last chance. Just take this little morsel of bread from the mass and you'll be spared. Or else they're preparing the stake to burn you on. And they said, if I perish, I perish. For us, your boss comes to you. Sign this false report or get fired. If I get fired, I get fired. Take a sip of beer with your friends or we're going to mock you. If I get mocked, I'll get mocked. Cheat on this test, or you're not going to get the grades you need for the job you want. If I have to work somewhere else, I'll work somewhere else. Keep looking at these images in pornography, or feel unsatisfied. If I have to wait on the Lord, I will wait on the Lord. For the Lord's promises... We're called all the time to make confessions like this. If I must, I must. Because I trust the Lord. How much more our Savior? It's interesting. Jesus never said, if I perish, I perish. There's no if about it. He came into this world. He says, I am. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. There's no if with Jesus. There's no wondering what is the will of God. We might look at Esther and Mordecai and hold them up as heroes. But far greater is the love that Christ shows as he trusts the Lord. Far greater is the commitment of Jesus Christ and the faith of Jesus Christ so that he can go forward for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who put himself not into a maybe this will work, maybe not. He did not hand himself over to the impetuous king of Persia but he gave himself up to the guaranteed terrors of the wrath of God the Father. Knowing he would die. 
knowing the agony of those three hours. And he didn't approach the cross and say, who knows? He said, your will be done. And here in Esther chapter 4, and here among God's people today, we see the fruits of the promises that Jesus kept. We do not come this morning to a judge whose answers are unknown and unreliable. We come to a judge who told us in Esther chapter 4, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews. And we've seen him come. Relief and deliverance in the person of Jesus Christ. We have seen his faith, his commitment. We have seen his love to go to the cross so that he would arise on the third day and announce to the world the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Live by those promises. Who knows? The Lord does. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that we might first approach as a wonderful narrative and fa fascinating events in the life of your people and thousands of years gone by, but this is much more than that. This is your word spoken to your people this morning, here in this place. A word that calls us to evaluate what our life is for, who are we, our status, the challenges, even the griefs that we carry. What are these in the eyes of the Lord? Who am I in the eyes of the Lord? That's the question we're being asked. Can we trust in your promises? But Lord, we praise you that we are not left with a who knows. We're not left with maybes. We are left with the Savior, Jesus Christ, who says, I will lay down my life for my sheep. I will give myself over to the blackness of those three hours on the cross, even as God's own people mocked me below my feet. I will put my trust in the Lord. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And what's the result of that? We live this life wondering, no, Lord, you have given us such a confidence, such an assurance that generations of your people have lived by that faith. If I must, I must. Because I know the Lord. I know how he keeps his promises in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that that same assurance would be within us. That this Esther 4 would call us to trust you. To trust you. Even if the only thing we have left is your promises. If those promises are Christ's, we have everything we need. Lord, we pray that you would reassure us of that. In whatever situations we are facing, the struggles of the heart and the mind that burden us, the questions of the hostility of the world around us, that we stand as your people, we stand as resting in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for the encouragement you give to us today. In Jesus' name we pray.